Chomsky by picking up a couple of DVDs at a video store in New York a few years ago. Manufactured consent and a rebel without pause. I remember this sequence where a few kids from a school radio station are interviewing Professor Chomsky at their little station. Noam was giving them his full attention as he does to everyone who requests it. Film and video are both by the nature manipulative. The editor director proposes an assembly of carefully selected segments that he or she has in mind. In other words, the context becomes more important than the content. And as a result, the voice that appears to come from the subject is actually coming from the filmmaker. That is why I find the process manipulative. The human brain forgets the cut, a faculty specifically human that I will learn Noam called psychic continuity. The brain absorbs a constructed continuity as a reality and consequently is convinced to witness a fair representation of the subject. On the other hand, animation that I decided to use for this film is clearly the interpretation of its author. If messages or even propaganda can be delivered, the audience is constantly reminded that they are not watching reality. So it's up to them to decide if they are convinced or not. Also, I have been looking for a project that would add up a long process to a hopefully coherent result. A way to focus my often shattered creativity. And maybe contribute to expose values I share. Of course, the egotistic side of me also felt empowered about the prospect of spending some time with the most important thinker alive, as is described in a paragraph which coincidentally ends by asking why Chomsky is an American hater. A misconception only possible if you consider that the same people who run a country also constitute it. But what the hell, Professor Chomsky is not getting any younger and I better hurry up. After all, I just did a film about my auntie for similar reasons. Not animated though. Then again, she's as controversial, or is she? We're gonna have a conversation, and I'm, sometimes this is gonna run, or sometimes not. So, hopefully, it's not gonna be too distracting. No, it doesn't matter. Okay, because so, it's uh, it's a bit noisy, so it's like that. It's an old-fashioned sound, that's why I yeah, wanted you to be prepared. <laughs> Harken back that to your youth. Wreck the audio? Mm -hmm. A little bit, but we will hear the camera, but as long as we understand the world, I don't mind. Yeah. So I prepared my question a little bit, but I... Uh, well, sorry, I'm a little bit nervous. I, I, uh, you are nervous? He yeah. is. After all your experience in the public eye? No, not... Uh, it depends on the person I'm meeting more than me. So. I wanted to start with asking you if you could recall the very first memory of your life. First memory of my life? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. I, I, there are memories that I can date because I know where they were. You know. So I can date memories from about a year and a half when I was uh, sitting on a 
I know where it was, so it had to be a year and a half, where I was sitting on a counter and my, uh, my aunt, who often, my, my parents had jobs, which was unusual. This is the 1930s. So there was a stream of aunts and cousins and others who came through. And there were several aunts who spent time with us. One of them was trying to get me to eat oatmeal, which I didn't want to eat. So I just put it in my cheek and refused to swallow it. And she was trying to figure out how to get me to swallow that oatmeal. But I must have sat there for a long time. I was a stubborn kid. I was not going to eat the oatmeal. I remember that very well. And that had to be at about 16 months or 17 months. And I remember other things from that time. I was in a nursery school. I remember sort of standing there looking around wondering what all these kids are up to and why and so on. <laughs> Do you think it, uh, it's connected with the development of a language, the formation of memories? Does it correspond to where the brain starts to grasp? A lot is being learned about language acquisition. The more intensively the topic is studied, the more sophisticated the research techniques, the more we learn that children know quite a lot of language, much more than you would expect, before they can exhibit any of that knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, a direct evidence about this, and there's also indirect evidence. So just to mention some of the indirect evidence, there is a, a technique of uh, teaching language to the deaf-blind. Actually, my wife did a lot of work on this. It's called the Dodoma method. It's with your hand. Well, what they do is uh, teach the person to put their hand on someone's face and using the motions of the face and the vocal cords to interpret what you're saying. There's extremely little, very little information comes through. But people get a very satisfactory knowledge of language from that. I mean, so much so that uh, you have to do pretty complex tests to see what they don't know. However, they have never succeeded in using this method for uh, people who lost sight and hearing before about 18 months old. What seems to be the case is that during the early exposure, where the child is not manifesting very much knowledge, maybe producing a word or two-word sentences, they're acquiring the basic character of the language quite a lot of knowledge, which they can then build on when they, it's unconscious, of course, but they can build on it when they get this later instruction, which has very little evidence. And they can, in fact, uh, uh, live in a society where people are talking and uh, they can understand what they're saying if they can put their hand on your face. In fact, I should say that, you know, one of the most striking things about language, which has really not been studied, just consider an infant, you know, a one-day-old infant. Uh, the infant, there's all kind of things going on in the world. How does the infant figure out what part of what's going on in the world has to do with language? It's an incredible feat. You know, no, no other organism can uh, do it. Know, you know what, you know what, when I grew up, uh, we used to believe in reincarnation. Yeah. It's just, it's, oh, a, it's a fairy tale, but I think it, it makes me look to a, be, a new being as a fully completed person. That's Plato. That's Plato's theory of remembrance. 
he, uh -huh. he was puzzled by the question of how you know so much. And he said, well, you must remember it from an earlier life. You're as smart as Plato. So I wanted to ask you quickly the type of education you received from your parents and, and quickly about uh, at school. It was a, a Deweyite uh, progressive school, which was uh, very successful. I mean, for me, at least, it was perfect. It, uh, it was not unstructured, but it uh, did uh, emphasize the initiative, uh, creativity, um, working with others. Uh, there was no grading. You, know, the, you, you were encouraged to pursue your own interests. Mm -hmm. uh, but within a structure that was established, so you went, you did, you know, learn the things you had to learn. But uh, meanwhile, pursuing your own interests and often working with others. In fact, I didn't, uh, I wasn't even aware that I was a good student until I went to high school. I went from this relatively free, creative, uh, exciting environment to a, a pretty regimented uh, academic high school where everyone's ranked and you do exactly what you're supposed to do when everyone's trying to get into college and so on. And then I discovered I was a good student. I mean, I knew I had skipped a grade and everyone else knew I'd skipped a grade, but nobody else, I'm the only thing anyone noticed was I was the smallest kid in the class, but uh, it didn't mean anything aside from that. And, and it, it, I can remember the school years very well. I barely remember high school. It's kind of like a black hole. And do you think competition is counter-stimulating? Uh, it shouldn't be there. What's the point of, of being better than someone else? And where was this school? Right outside the city limits of um, Philadelphia. It was in a kind of an open countryside. So, you know, by the time I was old enough to, my best friend and I would spend Saturday uh, riding our bikes all over the countryside. Did you keep friends from this age or during your life? Uh, we s sort of separated by high school. We all went our separate ways. Uh -huh. You spent a lot of time on your own. With my father, by the time I was I don't know, 10 or 11 or so, uh, every Friday night, for example, we would read uh, Hebrew classics, you know, 19th century literature, uh, uh, essays. Uh, it was just uh, part of the routine of incorporating the uh, the uh, emerging, the reviving Hebrew culture that was all of their lives. I mean, that's what they were devoted to, the revival of, uh, of the, the language, the culture, uh, you know, the Palestinian community, uh, this uh, Hebraic uh, revival. Was, Did you say Palestinian community? Well, you know, it's pre-Israel, so it's a Jewish community in Palestine. Okay, okay. Yeah. I suppose by now, my father would be called an anti-Zionist. He was then a deeply committed Zionist. But for him, it was a cultural revival, basically. Mm -hmm. Not particularly interested in the Jewish state. Mm -hmm. Do you remember if you had an ambition for your future as a child? A lot of crazy ambitions. 
I remember once telling my mother that I had decided that when I grew up, I wanted to be a taxidermist. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I guess I liked the word. I was about eight years old. <laughs> so since I'm ignorant, I got the luck to discover Descartes. I mean, I knew who Descartes was, but I read him after I read you. And I noticed it gives you the tools to doubt what he's saying. It's like the opposite of dogmatism. I mean, that you know, ought to be the ideal of teaching anyway, whether it's children or graduate students. They should be taught to challenge and to question images that come from the Enlightenment about this, say that teaching should not be like pouring water into a vessel. It should be like uh, laying out a string along which the student travels in his or her own way and maybe even questioning whether the string's in the right place. And, you know, after all, that's how modern science started. For thousands of years, it was accepted by scientists that objects move to their natural place. So a ball goes to the ground and steam goes to the sky. These things are kind of like common sense, and they were taken for granted for literally thousands of years uh -huh. from Aristotle. And it wasn't until Galileo and the modern scientific revolution that scientists decided to be puzzled by these obvious things. And as soon as you start to question things, you see nothing like that makes any sense. And every stage of science, or you know, even just learning, serious learning, comes from asking, why do things work like that? Why not some other way? All right, you find that the world is a very puzzling place. And if you're willing to be puzzled, you can learn. If you're not willing to be puzzled and just copy down what you're told or behave the way you're taught, uh, you just become a, a replica of someone else's mind. I mean, some of the technical work I'm doing now is initiated by my suddenly realizing that assumptions that have been standard throughout modern history of generative grammar, but in fact throughout the traditional study of language, just have no basis. And when we ask, okay, then why do we assume them? You have to look for a basis, then lots of avenues open up. And that happens constantly. And uh, do you remember when you start to f build your own voice or your own philosophy in a way? And could you describe how this process happened? It's a constant process. I mean, it probably starts with my not wanting to eat my oatmeal, you know. Why, you know? Uh-huh. And uh, in any kind of scientific inquiry, any, any kind of rational inquiry, it's striking in science, uh, you have a conception of how things ought to work. If you look at the empirical data, they're usually at least partially recalcitrant. Things don't fall into place. So you typically are working with a conflict between a conception of the way things ought to work in terms of elegance, simplicity, naturalness, and a look at the messy way in which things do seem to work. Uh, the Galilean revolution, which was a real revolution in the way of looking at the world, for one thing, because of the willingness to be puzzled about what seemed to be simple things, it's a hard move to make. In the case I mentioned, it was 2,000 years, you know, smart people. Yeah. They said that nature is simple, and it's the task of the scientists to show that it's simple. And if we've 
not been able to do that. We've failed as scientists. So if you find irreducible complexity, you just haven't understood. Well, that's a pretty good guideline. And it does turn out to be a very effective uh, driving element in inquiry. Because there's, every, there's good reasons why I think it ought to turn out to be simple. You know? I mean, for Galileo and the whole of early modern science, right through Newton, yeah, the great scientists, you know, Huygens, uh, others, Bernoulli, up to, through Newton, you know, it's just a kind of classic period of modern science. There was a very clear concept of intelligibility. The goal of science was to show that the world is intelligible. And intelligible meant something. It meant something that a, an artisan could create, the gears and levers, and something like a, a, a model was these, uh, say, medieval clocks, you know, which did all sorts of amazing things. Uh, that goes right through Newton. It's called the mechanical philosophy. Philosophy just meant science. So it's mechanical science, and that's the goal. I mean, Galileo, at the end of his life, was kind of distraught because he was not able to construct mechanical models of uh, the tides and the motion of the planets and so on. So he felt his life, scientific life, had failed. You know? mm -hmm. But then it went on. Finally, you get to Newton. And Newton demonstrated to his dismay that the world doesn't work like a machine, that there are what his scientific colleagues called occult forces namely attraction and repulsion, which don't operate by contact. So you can attract things at a distance, which was just unintelligible. Newton himself thought that this was what he called an absurdity, which no person with any scientific understanding could ever believe. Mm -hmm. There are just inherent mysteries which are beyond our cognitive capacities. Well, that was correct, and that was a real shocking discovery. It has now been absorbed. So to talk about the current stage is misleading if you're thinking about emerging fields like cognitive science, because we're not in that stage. Mm -hmm. we, we haven't got to the Galilean stage yet. Me, I work like a machine. I know this sequence is quite a struggle, and believe me, it's taking me forever to animate it. So I'll take a break. Noam kept coming back to Galileo, Newton, the Enlightenment, and I tried very hard to keep it short, but it seems endless. However, this is a very important part, in fact, and I must get through it. I think that Noam is telling me what it takes to do true science. Something to do with ideas, creativity, and rigorous observation of nature, and the willingness to be proven wrong and start the experiment again all over at any time. Richard Feynman, the great physicist, often talked about science integrity and said you should always publish the result of your experiment, especially when they prove you wrong. He also had a funny story about a good scientist that was ignored. In 1937, Jung, he was called, was trying to teach a rat to count three doors to get some food. So he would place the food each time in a maze three doors away from the rat to get it to count three doors. He would place the rat in a different place each time with the cheese three doors away. But the rat never counted the doors. He always went right through the door where the food was placed the time before. No matter where Young placed the rat and the food, the result was the same. He thought the rat must recognize the detail on the door, so he repainted them all identically, still the same result. He then thought the rat could still smell the food from where it was the previous time, so he put some chemical to wipe any possible remaining smell. 
Still the rat went to the exact same door. Maybe the rat could notice some light from the lab and use them as a guide, so he covered the maze. Still the same result. He eventually found out that the rat could tell by the way the floor sounded when he was running down the corridor. So he put the whole maze on sand. The rat couldn't tell anymore and had to learn to count the doors. Feynman called this experiment an A-class experiment because Jung had to go through all the possible steps before he could affirm it was conclusive. A rigor that he felt was unfortunately uncommon in the science the way it was conducted at his time. Now I'm just adding stuff that is not even from Noam. But I've put a loop under it so it's not so much work. The truth is that I'm frantically going through this animation and it has been two years since I started, so Noam is now 84. I neglect my appearance and I should be focusing on the film I'm preparing like Cum des Jours, but I won't stop. I must finish the film and show it to Noam before, well, before he's dead. My room is a pile of animation paper, my mother is at the hospital, but I only care about Noam's health, only to show him the finished film. This is childish and unscientific, but true. A few sessions we did before, we talked about evolution, and you're very skeptical, and I thought... I'm not skeptical about evolution. There's a common confusion outside of serious biology. I mean, natural selection is a factor in evolution. No serious biologist doubts that. But it's one of many factors. Yeah, yeah, For yeah. example, mutation is a factor. Yeah. I mean, uh, there are many other factors. For example, if you just take a look at our, you know, our own genetic endowment, uh, a lot of it uh, comes from transposition. When you, when you talk about the endowment, the endowment, oh, I'm sorry, how do you say endowment? When you're born with what? Well, like a... You, <clears throat> innate? Yeah, but do you use the word endowment? How do you spell it? Write it on the blackboard. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. Endowment? Endowment. Oh, endowment. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, it's good. So, to... you think that we have a way to comprehend the world within ourselves, yeah. or we can only comprehend the world up to this limit? Yeah, that's just Hume. That's Newton and Hume. So you try to discover what is this cognitive endowment that we have, that it is a fixed cognitive endowment is not really arguable unless you think we're angels. Yeah. But if we're part of the organic world, we have fixed capacities. Just like I can't fly, you know. These capacities have a certain scope and they have certain limits. Uh, that's the nature of, capa of organic capacities. Then comes the question, okay, what are they? In fact, one of the striking things is what I just mentioned. We, our cognitive endowment sort of compels us to regard the world in mechanical terms. We know that's wrong, yeah. but we can't help seeing the world like that. Uh, if, if you look at the moon rising in, in the uh, you know, early evening, at the horizon it's big, yeah. and it gets smaller and smaller. Yeah. It's called the moon illusion. We know it's not true, but you can't help seeing it. Yeah. Well, I, have, I thought of it a lot, and I know it's one of the paradox, but. I think our brain zoom. It's like if you see the world through a window which has a far distance, and you will see a bridge in a distance, well, and the window delimits your attention, then you would feel the bridge is much bigger than what it is. I mean, now you're trying to give an explanation, and there's been a lot of work on what the explanation yeah. is. But whatever, and it's not so trivial, but whatever the explanation is, we can't help seeing it, okay? We just see it, just like we can't help 
thinking that the world works by uh, physical interaction, contact. Some other part of our brain tells us it's not true uh, because of theories that have been developed that say it can't work like that. Yeah. But that can't change our perception and interpretation because that's just fixed. Okay, trying to visualize, or oh, I guess it's not visualizable, but this endowment. So we see a tree and we understand it's a tree. Does it mean that our brain is equipped with a fixed capacity that tells us this is a tree? Here's another question where it's good to be puzzled. How do we identify something as a tree? It's not so simple. So for example, uh, you plant a tree, say a willow tree, which is a good example. It grows. At some point, you cut a branch off it and you put that branch in the ground. I suppose it grows and it becomes exactly identical to the original tree. I suppose the original tree is uh, cut down. Is that new one the same willow tree? Why not? It's genetically identical. It has all the same properties, but we know it's not the same tree. Why not? I mean, and if you go further, it turns out our concept of tree or rock or person or anything is extremely intricate. And furthermore, see, here's an, what I think is just a classic error that runs right through philosophy and psychology and linguistics right up to the moment. That's the, uh, the idea that uh, words, say meaning-bearing elements, like say tree or person or you know, John Smith or anything, uh, pick out something in the extra mental world, something that a physicist could identify. So that if I have a word, say cow, it refers to something and a, you know, a scientist knowing nothing about my brain could figure out what counts as a cow. That's just not true. Uh, th that's why you have classic books with names like uh, words and object, word and object, Quine's major book, or words and things, Roger Brown's major book. That referentialist assumption is simply false about humans. Uh -huh. I mean, it's true of animals. Like, as far as we know of animal communication, yeah, that's actually true. Uh -huh. But for humans, it's simply untrue. So and furthermore, yeah. every infant knows it. And that poses a huge evolutionary problem. Where'd that come from? It imposes an acquisition problem, a descriptive problem, an evolutionary problem. It's never been looked at because everyone assumes, uh, well, there's just a relationship. That's like assuming things move to their natural place. We're never going to have a real understanding of semantics unless those illusions are thrown out. Well, something that always struck me since I was young is like you get the representation of the world by symbols first. Like logically, you would see a dog, and then you would see a drawing of a dog and make the connection. But in your life, you get exposed to a representation of a dog in a very actually simplified way. And then you go to the, or let's say, you go outside and you see a real dog. Yeah, the trouble is that's not the way it works. Yeah, that's very commonsensical, just false. No, I'm not, I'm saying it's how it's exposed, uh, like we, what it makes we, It makes sense, and every work on philosophy or uh, linguistics says exactly that. This just happens to be false. And furthermore, every infant knows it. Uh, fairy stories are based on the fact that it's false. 
like a, take a, a fairy story that any child understands. No, I'm not saying the child believes it's a real dog. What I'm saying not, is like we That's just... not the point. We do not identify dogs in terms of their physical characteristics. Mm. As you can see, I felt a bit stupid here. Let me explain. I think I couldn't get my point through Norm. Misuse of word and heavy accent aggravated, I mean, aggravated my attempt. I was simply expressing that in life we first encounter image of certain things such animals, then later we would see the real thing. For instance, I saw many pictures of a tiger before I saw a real one in a zoo. There is nothing to argue about that, but Noam kept saying it was false because of my use of the word representation. I'm pretty sure that he understood it as mental representation, as I was just talking of an image in a book. Nevertheless, it gave him the opportunity to deepen his argument, which is hard to understand. So I kept the whole thing, even though I looked stupid. Meanwhile, I decided to recycle some of my drawings since he was making the same point again. We do not identify dogs in terms of their physical characteristics. Mm. We identify dogs, for example, in terms of a property of psychic continuity. Like if uh, a witch turns a dog into a camel and then some fairy princess uh, kisses the camel and uh, turns back to a dog. It's been a dog all along, even when it looked like a camel. I mean, that's the basis of fairy yeah, tales. I was not saying that it's the way but we psychic, understand it. Psychic understand. continuity is not a physical property. Mm -hmm. It's a property that we impose on things. So therefore, there is no hope for finding a way of identifying the things that are related to symbols by looking at their physical properties. They're individuated, they're identified in terms of our mental constructions. So they're basically mental objects. Mm -hmm. And that means the whole referentialist concept has to be thrown out. And you have to look at the relation of language to the world in some different fashion. So, and do you think we constructed the world in mirroring this image we had in our mind? We, we do it, but we don't do it the way philosophers and linguists think we do it. We certainly do it. So, for example, sure, we see the world in terms of trees and uh, dogs and rivers and so on. But then the question is, well, what are those concepts? Now, the standard assumption is those concepts are linked to physical identifiable physical things in the extramental world. And that assumption is just false. Mm -hmm. And unless we rid ourselves of that assumption, we won't be able to understand the way thought and language relates to the world. But that's a topic that's just taboo in, the, in philosophy and psychology. So they're stuck. They're like mechanics pre-Galileo, where everything went to its natural place. Well, as long as you keep to that for thousands of years, you never going to understand uh, the mechanics of the world. That's why I think these are the kinds of reasons why it makes very good sense to think back to the earliest stages of the scientific revolution. Not Einstein, that's too sophisticated. Let's go to the earliest stages where people had that credible intellectual breakthrough, and they said, let's be puzzled about what seems obvious. So it, why should we take it to be obvious that if I let go of a ball, it goes down and not up? Uh -huh. I mean, it's sort of obvious, but why? Well, as soon as you're willing to ask that question, you get the beginnings of modern science. If, you, if you're not willing to ask that question, you say, well, it goes down because it belongs on the ground, uh, no science develops. Mm -hmm. 
Once again, I had posed my question the wrong way. I was trying to ask if the way humans build things such as cities, art, cars and so on was reflective of a sort of a blueprint we would carry within our endowment. Like bees constructing their hives, for instance. So, next time I met Noam, I showed him this animation, hoping it would help to make sense. And it did make sense. At the beginning of the second interview, I showed the work in progress to Noam, who was quite pleased, it seems. And I noticed in the second interview that he was more receptive to my ideas. So I asked my question again. But using bees and hive as an example made it more confusing. I suppose there's an interaction. So if you uh, watch uh, children uh, uh, building a, trying to build a house of, with carts, you know, you stack them up and you put something on top, and uh, they must have some initial conception in mind of what they're planning to do, uh, but it uh, is certainly altered by the process. You see, well, this is not going to stand, so I'll have to rearrange it and do something in a different way. I mean, take the building we're in. Uh, one of its striking characteristics, like I sit in my, my office, uh, is that there aren't any right angles in many of the buildings, so uh, it's, everything's a little skewed. Uh, the, uh, uh, I don't know what was in Frank Gehry's mind, but one architect who came through working on the, uh, looking at the structure of the building suggested to me that uh, it has, in some respects, the character of a a three-dimensional version of a Mondrian painting. Yes, I wanted to know if you have any thinking of uh, the mechanism of inspiration. It's a mystery. It's, it's something common to humans. You see it in young children. Uh, you see it in scientists. Uh, you see it in uh, uh, carpenters trying to solve a complex problem of uh, how to build a house but uh, it's just something that happens. Uh, all kinds of conditions, uh, strange conditions. So for example, uh, uh, I was watching a couple of carpenters working on a summer cottage. They had a kind of an idea in mind, but we're kind of going along to see how it would work. They reached a problem that looked insoluble, you know, and they sort of took off for a while, and then they came back and they immediately did it. And I asked, how'd you do that? And they said, well, we went out and smoked some pot and it just kind of came to us. <laughs> so, who knows, that's inspiration. <laughs> I wanted to cut out this sequence. For a short time period, I had an episode myself where I indulged into this habit, very shortly in fact. And looking back, it didn't do me very good at all. Now that I've said it, I can keep this sequence. That's interesting. For instance, in my uh, case, I use a lot of my misunderstanding as a source of inspiration. And I realized that lately, like, uh, because my, uh, my English is not good, many times when people talk to me, I understand something different. I remember I was talking to uh, my friend, and she told me she had made uh, uh, a model of a boat in a forest. And I understood the forest was in the boat. So I imagined a, a sort of a vegetable uh, arc of uh, Noé, right. Noé's <laughs> arc, 
I think something jarring takes place. And uh, that can happen in a class, for example. You're, you're lecturing, a student raises a question, it, uh, suddenly you recognize that something you thought was obviously true has a problem with it, and uh, uh, for a while it may seem insoluble. And you may take a walk, or uh, maybe overnight, uh, something, you're sleeping, something comes to you, and uh, uh, all of a sudden you just see ways of looking at the, at the issue in the world a little bit differently. I think that's how, uh, uh, from childhood on to uh, uh, people do creative work, it's somehow the way it happens. Actually, what's going on, nobody understands. Uh, in, in the little clip I show you, uh, you talk in length about how we try to interpret the world and how we ought to throw away what's believed in linguistic or philosophy. You say, why do we recognize that this is a different tree when it's been cut and it grows and it's identical? And since then, I, I, I read about genetics, and that's a, a, a clone, basically, when you reproduce. It's a sexual reproduction, so it's a clone. So it's potentially identical. But my only, the only answer I could give was that I know it's a different tree because I saw somebody come and cut it. And, and then grow again. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was thinking it's probably less trivial than that. Well, actually, I think there's a real point there. Part of our concept of a tree has to do with a certain pretty abstract notion of continuity. So the original tree has a continuous existence, which we impose on it, because genetically speaking, the branch that was cut off is the same object. Yeah. But when it becomes a tree, it doesn't have the kind of continuity that we interpret as continuity. I mean, a different intelligence could interpret continuity quite differently and say that the new one is the real tree. That's our conception of continuity. Yeah. And uh, it's a very complex one. So, uh, for example, there's a children's story, which my grandchildren like, uh, liked when they were little. It's a story about a donkey named Sylvester. And something happens, and it turns Sylvester into a rock. And the rest of the story is uh, the rock, Sylvester, trying to explain to his parents parent donkeys, that it's really their baby Sylvester. And since children's stories have happy endings, uh, something else happens and it turns them back to Sylvester and uh, everybody's happy. Well, the children understand that the rock, though it has none of the properties of a donkey, physical yeah. properties, uh, and has all the properties of a rock, is really Sylvester. And for example, if he was turned into a camel later, something would be a jar. He's got to come back and be what he is, Sylvester. Mm -hmm. All right, what that tells you is that without any instruction, of course, uh, an infant understands a certain special kind of continuity. It's a very specific kind, even more, much more abstract even in the case of the tree. But there's a kind of psychic continuity that we impose. Uh, that's part of the interpretation we impose on the world. that uh, uh, identifies the objects that are around us, whether it's persons or rivers or rocks or trees well, or anything else. I think I have an example that maybe make me understand the concept. 
When I meet a friend that I didn't see for 20 years and his appearance is completely different, first I feel I'm meeting a different person. And then in the course of the conversation, and it's generally 20 minutes, 30 minutes, this person become my friend. And the old image of my friend, like his picture, uh, become younger than he is. So I readjust and I was wondering if this is a phenomenon that everybody perceives. All the time. I mean, we... Uh, but is this the same phenomenon that we apply to object? Yeah, same as with object, like the tree or a river. Or, let's say, take the Charles River over there, the river going past the building. Uh, what makes it the Charles River? Uh, you can have uh, substantial physical changes and it would still be the Charles River. So, yeah. for example, you can reverse the direction, still be the Charles River. You can break it up into tributaries that uh, uh, end up somewhere else and would still be the Charles River. You can change the content. So maybe uh, you build a manufacturing plant upstream and the content is mostly arsenic, let's say. Well, it's still the Charles River. Well, On the other hand, they're very small changes and that'll, you can make, in which case it won't be the Charles River at all. So suppose you uh, put uh, panels along the side so it goes in a straight path and you start using it to uh, ship freight up and down. It's, it's not the river anymore, it's a canal. Oh, yes. And uh, I suppose you make some minimal physical change, almost undetectable change, which hardens it. It's called a phase change, undetectable, but it makes it glass, basically. And uh, you paint a line down the middle, and people start using it to commute to Boston. It's a highway. It's not a river. No, somehow we, we can go on and on like this. Uh, we understand all these things without instruction, without experience. They have to do with uh, very complex notions of continuity of entities. A physicist cannot detect because they're not part of the, I mean, of course, the physical world is part of them, but it's only one part. A major part of how we identify anything in the world, no matter how elementary, is the mental conceptions that we impose on interpreting very fragmentary experience. And our experience is indeed very fragmentary. So visual experience is just, uh, you know, uh, stimulations of the retina. But we impose an extremely rich interpretation of it including things like, say, continuity. Actually, a lot of science fiction is based on this. So if you, uh, you know, somebody's in a spaceship and uh, they get, I forget what the word is used, they transposed or something. Teleportation. To, yeah, so tele, tele, Teleportation. Yeah, okay. And they go somewhere else and they reappear. Well, I've watched my kids watching these things. They understand immediately that it's the same person who appeared over there, that there's no continuity. On the other hand, I ask them sometimes, well, suppose that he had this teleportation or whatever it's called, and he appears over there, and suppose he's still here. Which one is the person? At that point, you get confused. Yeah. You don't know, because our conceptions don't give an answer to that. Actually, there are classical philosophical problems that are based on this. One famous one, what's called the ship of Theseus, goes back to the Greeks. Uh, suppose that Theseus has a ship and he's on the ocean and one of the boards falls off. So he throws it into the sea and they put another board there, still the ship of Theseus. Well, suppose this keeps happening until every board has been replaced, still the ship of Theseus. 
Suppose someone on the shore has been collecting all these boards and reconstructs what in fact was the actual original ship. That's not the ship of Theseus. It's the one that uh, Theseus is on, even though it's the other one that's physically identical to it. This one isn't. So there's no point trying to solve the philosophical problem. The problem is an epistemological one. It's something about the nature of our cognitive systems. So it appears that, as far as it's understood, non-human animals have a, a direct connection between the, the symbolic representations in their mind and identifiable physical events in the world. So you take a vervet monkey, which has alarm calls, and apparently those alarm calls are triggered automatically by a certain you know, movement of leaves in, the, uh, in a tree, which they give a predator call, you know, and uh, apparently it's reflective. When I was doing these interviews, I was editing The Green Hornet. One day I walked into the elite room and I realized that some of the objects had a different kind of entity than the other, the one I had interacted with. It's like if they jumped to tell me the story we shared, the sofa. I was so tired after the shooting that I asked for something more comfortable to rest on. They treated me with the sofa. But I had to move the chair to the side to make room. The coffee table. I dragged it closer to the sofa so I could check my emails while watching the editing on a giant screen that was specially installed for me. And my editor, of course. But he's a person, so it's not surprising to have a relation with this. Do you remember the first exposition you had to science? Should I tell you an embarrassing experience, which I've felt guilty about all my life? Okay. In, in third grade, uh, I decided I wanted to do a science project on astronomy. So the teacher said, you know, fine. And I went and looked. But what I finally did was took the Encyclopedia Britannica and I copied out a section on astronomy and I handed it in knowing that that's not the right way to do it. And nobody ever, there was no, I mean, the teacher could obviously tell, you know, but there was no censure or anything. And uh, that's uh, you know, what, I must have been third grade, so I was eight years old, so that's about uh, 75 years of guilt. <laughs> <laughs> I had the same experience I knew at school, much later. The first essay I wrote, my best friend wrote it for me. And I got the best notation for the class, so I had to read it in front of everyone. <laughs> and have you felt guilty? Or you oh, sorry, <laughs> okay, But the funny part is I felt... partners. <laughs> <laughs> but the funny part is I got good grade after that. Yeah, you know, like a lot of kids. I had a chemistry set down in the basement and um, producing uh, horrible smells that drove my parents crazy, and they were hoping I wouldn't blow the place up and that sort of thing electrical circuits, uh, chemistry, things like that. Uh, with one from my closest friend uh, since nursery school, right through high school, was that uh, we would go every Saturday afternoon. By the time we got old enough to uh, take the subway, you know, 10, 11, we'd go to the uh, Franklin Institute, that's a science institute in downtown Philadelphia, uh, which had uh, lectures, exhibits, uh, and we'd spend most of the afternoon in the, either in the Franklin Institute or the uh, Museum of Natural History, which was right next door. That was our Saturday afternoon.
Noam spent also hours at the library devouring 19th century French and Russian literature. I had just finished reading Fathers and Sons by Ivan Turgenev, and I pointed out to Noam that constant feeling of generalized deterioration of the world that each generation blames the next one for. When I was young, life was better. Things were much simpler, blah, 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 blah. I was wondering if there were a biological explanation for this phenomenon. When I was young, life was better. Things were much simpler, blah, 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 blah. But Noam took the conversation to a different place. Could well be a property of uh, urban uh, industrialized societies. I'm not sure it's true of peasant societies, mm -hmm. a farming society where you learn the skills and you apply the skills and you transmit them to your children and so on. I mean, for example, one thing that has been discovered uh, surprised a lot of uh, anthropologists and uh, agricultural scientists is that uh, when uh, uh, people, uh, when uh, there have been development programs in which, say, you know, in, say Liberia, there happened to be one where scientific agriculture was introduced. You know, peasants were taught the most sophisticated techniques of agriculture and so on. And they determined that yield dropped. And when it was investigated, it... What, well, yield drop? Yield, the production, what was oh, yeah, produced. Yeah. So they were producing less with scientific agriculture than with traditional peasant agriculture. At first, nobody knew why, but when it was investigated, it turned out that uh, uh, agriculture had, in fact, become a science known only to women. So women had extensive, detailed lore about planting. You know, you plant this seed under this rock at uh, this hour of the day, and so on and so forth. And it was transmitted from mother to daughter for maybe thousands of years. And it got more and more sophisticated, and it got to give uh, 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 very high yields in not very productive soil. Uh, and, and the men in the community didn't even know about it. Uh, nor, of course, did the outsiders who came in. Well, you know, that's a case where people kind of reproduce, improve. Uh, I, I, I doubt that, say, those little girls would have had the, uh, uh, the feelings that you're describing. You're getting something from your mother, which is a repository of you know, endless tradition, and maybe you find ways of adapting it or slightly improving it, but, uh, but you're essentially reproducing what you grew up with. Um, so how do you balance this knowledge that's come from the ages to the improvement of science? Like now, science and the technology has advanced. Uh, you would feel that previous knowledge would be obsolete, but yet there is an instinct, or I don't know if it's correct to call it an instinct, but people know uh, there is a science of knowing what plant to use for. It's, it's lore, not instinct. Yeah, it's are you correct? Lore? Lore, just accumulated, unarticulated knowledge. It's like you know how to behave. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, you know, you're taught or you learn in childhood uh, how to behave in social situations. You can't articulate it. Yeah. Uh, you're not conscious of it. So if you, uh, you find a child who has, let's say, Asperger's syndrome, meaning they just don't pick up social cues, yeah. they don't understand when you're supposed to talk to someone and yeah. when you're not supposed to talk to them and 
how you're supposed to act towards them. I mean, these are children who will have a lot of problem from nursery school on. I once asked a mental health specialist uh, what it was. I didn't know what Asperger's syndrome was because I'd heard about it. And she, she laughed and she told me, um, walk down the halls of MIT and half the people you see have Asperger's syndrome. How do you deal with somebody come to you and talk about astrology? Astrology? Yeah, because a lot of women, for instance, and it's terrible to generalize, oh, Michelle here, she's gonna kill me, but my girlfriend, for instance, she gets mad at me if I dismiss her belief in astrology, and I want to maintain my relationship. I, I don't dismiss the person's interest in it. Uh -huh. And people have all sorts of irrational beliefs, me too, you know. Uh, I may think they're irrational, but to them they're meaningful. And after all, some pretty smart people were interested in astrology, like Isaac Newton, for example. Uh -huh. uh, so it's not, uh, it's not imbecility. I mean, uh, humans have a kind of like an automatic, in this case, instinctive uh, drive to find causal relations, to explain things that are happening in terms of causes. When you can't see the causes, you postulate hidden causes. I mean, infants do this. Uh, you can you do experiments with infants in which uh, you know something is moving along and then something starts moving this way. They'll make up in their minds that there's some hidden contact there that you can't see, you know. Oh, yeah, and, okay, uh, yeah. And we just do this instinctively. I mean, if things are happening around us, we try to find some agent behind it. Yeah. Often an agent, you know, like an active intelligence that's doing it, sometimes something mechanical. So it, it pretty naturally leads to beliefs like astrology, especially because you find, I mean, life is full of coincidences. So you try to make a connection between the coincidences and you find a pattern of the stars, or it's a full moon, so this is going to happen, and so on and so forth. Because I notice in what you're saying, and I, you're not a believer, if I do some research, research on you, you're not going to come up as atheist. And I think because the religion is a relief for a lot of people, and you don't want to hurt that. Correct? Well, I think one or another kind of religious belief is a, it's a real cultural universal. I don't think any group has ever been discovered that uh, doesn't have some sort of belief in uh, something you know, beyond their conscious experience that's directing things or that's uh, somewhere in the background and giving our lives meaning. I mean, they may not believe in a divinity, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, some sort of a spirit in the world that we can't grasp that's making sense of things that's giving meaning to life. Throughout history and throughout uh, every society we know, uh, people are just not satisfied to think, uh, look, uh, uh, I go from dust to dust and there's no meaning to my life. Well, what's your personal feeling on that? I think you go from dust to dust and there's no meaning in your life. But that's hard for a lot. I can easily understand why plenty of people wouldn't be happy to accept this. I mean, you, you can easily understand if, I suppose a mother has a dying child yeah. and wants to believe that she's going to see him again in heaven. Okay, that's a, an understandable belief. Yeah. And, and uh, certainly don't 
ridicule it or try to teach her, that, give her a lecture in epistemology or something. You don't want to help people? It's something that I don't personally have. I don't listen to rock music either. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that other people shouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and furthermore, uh, the fact of the matter is that religious beliefs do create communities. They weld communities together. And we're a tribal society. You know, people form families, clans, groups, social groups, professional groups. So you want to be part of something. Yeah, yeah. And religion happens to be, in fact, again, cross-culturally, uh, one of the ways in which the group uh, coheres and gets something more out of life than just my individual existence. Yeah. So it's uh, understandable that there should be one or another form of religious belief. I think we should change the camera. I think it's the time for the for the break. Oh, I see. Okay. So we get another camera next time? Yeah, I'm gonna use this one because I I okay. the discussion is so good I won't want to lose the job. In fact, I eventually decided to stick to my plan and continued to shoot the rest of the interview with my old mechanical bollocks. This way, I could only film short fragments of Noam and I was committed to what moments he would appear on the final version. I was also committed to have to animate 98% of the whole film and hear the sound of my cranky camera each time Noam would appear, so I would have to illustrate its sound every single time. Do you remember what was your first thinking of linguistic? There's background, like when I was a child. My father worked on history of the Semitic languages, so I read work of his, like I read his doctoral dissertation when I was, I don't know, 10, 12 years old. It was on a medieval grammarian, medieval Hebrew grammarian, so I kind of knew, I had some acquaintance with the field. Later, uh, I sort of got into it by accident. Uh, and when I got into it, I you know, found it intriguing, but, uh, and did things the way we were taught to do. And at some point I realized this doesn't make any sense. You know, the way we're taught to do things was descriptivist. So the, the way you, linguistics at that time, and to a large extent still, is a matter of uh, organizing data. So a typical assignment when I was an undergraduate, let's say, would be to take data from some American Indian language and put it into an organized form. You didn't ask the question, why is the data this way, not some other way? That wasn't a question that was asked. In fact, uh, I remember dramatically uh, the first talk I gave when I was a graduate student, invited to a major university to give a talk on work that I was doing, you know, the normal thing. The leading figure in the department, one of the famous linguists, met me at the airport and you know, we drove to the college and uh, on the way we talked and I asked him what he was working on and he said he's not doing any work now. Uh, what he's doing is just collecting data and storing it. And he had a good reason, which is implicit in the linguistics of that day in Europe and the United States. Computers were coming along. So pretty soon you'd be able to analyze huge masses of data. It was assumed that the procedure, the methods of analysis that had been reached in the structuralist traditions, that they were the right way to understand everything about language. Well, you know, if you sharpened up those procedures, you could program them for a computer, then you, you feed the data in, 
and uh, you're done. How old were you when? That was 1953. Okay. So uh, I, mean, I kind of half believed it because that's the way I was trained. But the other half of my brain was telling me this makes absolutely no sense. Can you tell me the transition or sort of the inspiration that started your theory? Well, it was pretty straightforward. When I was an undergraduate, I had to get an honors thesis. You do a piece of work that's your honors thesis. And uh, the faculty member who I was working with, very famous, very significant person, very influential, rightly, he suggested to me that I do a structural analysis of modern Hebrew. Well, I knew some Hebrew, so it made sense. And uh, I did what we were supposed to do. What you're supposed to do is get an informant and then carry out fieldwork procedures. So there's a set of routines you go through to take the data from the informant, you know, find the phonology, find the morphology, you know, a few comments about syntactic structure, comments about the semantics, and that's your thesis. So I started going through the routine with him. And after about a month, I realized this is totally ridiculous. I mean, I know the answers to these questions. Why am I asking him? And the questions that I don't know the answers to, like the phonetics, I don't care about. But the parts that I care about, I already basically know the answers. So what do I care? Why do I have to get it from him? So we st I stopped the informant work, and I just started doing what seemed like the obvious thing to do, uh, write a generative grammar. And that's what I did. But it was kind of a hobby. I don't think anyone even looked at it. You know, the fact, it finally was published about 30 years later, I think. Can you tell me, like, in a simple way, like this first approach of uh, generative grammar? It's almost a truism. I mean, if you think about what a language is, say, what you and I know, we have somehow in our heads a procedure for constructing an infinite array of structured expressions, each of which is assigned a sound and assigned a semantic interpretation. That's like a truism. And furthermore, these structured expressions have the property of what's called digital infinity. They're like the numbers, the natural numbers. You know, there's five and six, but nothing in between. That's not natural numbers anymore. And the same with language. You know, there's a five-word sentence, a six-word sentence. There's no five-and-a-half-word sentence. They're very much unlike, say, the communication system of bees or any other system we know. Now, that's very rare in the natural world, digital infinity. And by that time, say, late 40s, uh, the mathematics of it were well understood. The theory of computation had been developed, theory of recursive functions. So these were familiar uh, concepts within contemporary mathematics. And, you know, I studied them when I studied advanced logic and mathematics. And it just sort of fell together. The, you, ha you have this system of digital infinity. It, it's a procedure of some sort that generates an infinity of structured expressions. That's a generative grammar, in fact. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. So that ought to be the core of the study. And then comes the question, well, okay, what is it? Well, then you run into the problem I mentioned before. As soon as you try to do it, you find that in order to deal with the data that available, it has to be extremely complex and intricate. But that doesn't make any sense either, because every child masters it in no time. So somehow it can't be rich and complex. Uh, and then comes the field. The field is to try to show that what appears to be 
rich and complex, is at the core just very simple. Actually, there's, uh, you know, when you think about it, as we started to do from the 50s, there's an evolutionary basis for this, too. Language is a very curious phenomenon. I mean, one question we ought to be puzzled with, uh, two questions, is why are there any languages at all? And another one is, why are there so many? If you go back, say, 50,000 years, both of those questions were answered because that's when our ancestors left Africa and there's been no relevant cognitive change since. So children everywhere in the world have the same capacity for language acquisition. So the questions were finished by about 50,000 years ago. And if you go back very shortly before that, like maybe 100,000 years ago, the questions were answered because there weren't any languages. From an evolutionary point of view, that's the flick of an eye. How do you have this record? Because obviously it's well, that a dead fossil. That comes from paleoanthropology. Oh, um, yeah, the tools they make. And well, we know the fossil record. We know the record of uh, you know, creation of artifacts yeah. and so on. And it's pretty well recognized that there was a sudden explosion, sometimes called the Great Leap Forward, roughly in that period, you know, maybe 75,000 years ago. You can argue tens of thousands of years. It doesn't matter much. From an evolutionary point of view, it's an instant. So somewhere in that instant, some small hunter-gatherer group, you know, it could have been a couple of thousand people, uh, you suddenly find a burst of creative activity, uh, complex tools, uh, recording natural phenomena, more complex family structures, symbolic representation, you know, art and so on. From an evolutionary point of view, it's an instant. Now, it's generally assumed that, and it's hard to think of an alternative, that that instant must be the time when language suddenly appeared, because language is required for all these things. Before, there could have been you know, primitive communication systems like every animal has. But human language, with the property I just mentioned, uh, the capacity for thought constructing in your head. When you walk around, you're talking to yourself. Yeah. You can't stop. I mean, it takes a real act of will not to talk to yourself. And what you're doing is thinking, basically, or recollecting, or you know, whatever yeah. it is. Uh, but you're, you're making use of constantly of this capacity to construct an unbounded array of structured expressions which have a meaning and a sound. Uh, that's the core of our ability to create, to invent, uh, you know, plan, uh, interpret, yeah. and so on. Well, that must have happened right about that time. But if it happened suddenly, it has to be simple. There's no time. In evolutionary time, that's nothing, remember. Yeah. Which means that some small thing must have happened, some small mutation probably in one, and a mutation is in one person, it's not in a group, suddenly gave that person the capacity to, to this capacity. Well, that person was unique in the animal world. It could plan, it could think, it could interpret, and so on. But if that happened, and there's no pressures on that system, no selection or other pressures. Yeah. It just appeared. Well, if it just appeared, it's going to be perfect. It's going to be like a snowflake. Uh -huh. you know, it just follows from natural law. That's what appears. Uh, like a snowflake is what it is. You know, it doesn't evolve. 
uh, well, you know, that capacity would have been, in fact, transmitted to offspring partially. And after some time, maybe a couple of generations, this capacity might have dispersed through the group. And at that point, there becomes a reason to externalize it, to find a way to take what's going on in your head and turn it into sound or gesture yeah. or something. Well, but does this capacity give an advantage to this person or this group of people? It does give an advantage to the person. Because, yeah. Like if you have the capacity to plan and interpret yeah. and so on, yeah, you have advantages over others. It's not such a trivial matter for advantageous traits to proliferate. They often just die off. So for all we know, this might have happened many times in the preceding yeah. uh, couple hundred thousand years. But once it took, we know that it took because we're here. You know, So at one point, this took a number of people had it. some point, you start getting externalization. And then you can get communication. But what that means is that contrary to thousands of years of speculation and what's almost universally assumed now, communication couldn't have been a significant factor in evolution. It's a secondary process. Today, during the lunch pause, Noam went to see his doctor and get some test results. Are you worried about your health? Mm, I'm not. Doctors are, but I'm not. <laughs> so you don't have anxiety? I figure three score and ten. That's what we're supposed to have. Seventy years, according to the Bible. Anything else comes free. When I was about ten years old, I used to get frantic about dying. You know, what happens when that spark of consciousness disappears? You know, nightmares about it. But uh, by the time I was a teenager, I figured that's ridiculous. You know, my model is David Hume. When he died, he had his friends with him, like Adam Smith. He was very placid. You know, he said, you know, this is the way existence works. And goodbye. No afterlife. Nothing. Do you mind if I ask you about your feeling when your wife passed away? I just should not talk about that. It's, it's different. I can't get out over it. You know? Yeah, no, I'm yeah. It seems that you had the perfect relationship from the outside point of view. It wasn't, you know, nothing's perfect, but yeah. uh, it was very intimate, yeah. I think a lot of human beings spend uh, a lot of their life trying to solve problems of relationship or find a relationship and... We pretty much solved it when we were children. <laughs> we were children when we got married. Yeah. You know, she, Carol was 19, I was 20. <laughs> Soup is on, lover, lover, come on, over. And do you think it helped you in your work? It's hard to say. I mean, um, Carol was kind of a social butterfly. You know, she was as a teenager, you know, going all kind of parties, dating, this and that, I was very solitary. But, uh, and for a couple of years, we more or less lived her style of life. But 
you know, I'd sit in the corner at the parties. But after a while, we just drifted into a very private life. You know, saw a couple friends. And, uh, we, weren't, we weren't hermits, like you know, children, grandchildren, friends, and so on. But uh, mostly we lived, we preferred to be alone. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. um, we started talking about your education with last time, but more about the school. Can you tell me a bit more about the relationship you had with your parents? Uh, things were quite different in those days. I mean, the relationship was fine, you know, but uh, not very close, really. So, for example, uh, there were things happening in my childhood that I never would have dreamt of talking to them about. Uh, we were the only Jewish family in a neighborhood that was largely uh, Irish and German Catholic. This is in the 30s and very anti-Semitic and pretty pro-Nazi, in fact, with the Irish, because they hated the British, uh, the Germans, because they were Germans. It's not like today, a boy in the streets wasn't going to get shot, you know, but it was unpleasant, you know, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in the streets. There were streets I couldn't walk through, because the Irish kids lived there and go somewhere else, you know. But I never talked to my parents about it. I don't think they knew till their death. You know, by the time the Second World War came, Everything changed uh, superficially. So in December 7th, 1941, uh, the people who had been still having beer parties at the fall of Paris, which I remember, were walking around with tin hats, uh, telling everyone to pull down their shades because the Luftwaffe is going to bomb the city and so on. A very striking transition, which taught me something. But then during the war, for reasons I don't understand, there were race riots all over the place. In fact, there was a teenage uh, curfew for a couple of years at 7 o'clock. In Philadelphia? Yeah, if we wanted to go out after 7, we had to have parental permission. And uh, I went to a Hebrew school, and uh, actually we had police protection from the subway stop to the school and back. And once we were on the subway, you're kind of on your own. But, uh, I don't know why, but that was some kind of phenomenon that took place during the war. Mm. And when did you hear about the camps the first time? Well, rumors were coming through by 42, 43. Nobody really knew the scale, and it was downplayed, strikingly downplayed. The most dramatic, actually, as I'm sure you know, there were international conferences to try to do something about the people who wanted to flee the continent. But nobody was willing to do anything. Uh, Roosevelt, in fact, turned back a ship, the St. Louis, which came with, I think, a thousand refugees from Europe. And they went to Cuba, sort of wandered around the region, but the U.S. just turned it back. They were sent back to Europe. Most of them ended up in um, you know, gas chambers. Uh, the most striking thing was after the war, in 1945, there was, by then everybody knew, there was no longer any pretext for not saving the survivors. And there were a fair number of survivors. And they were living in concentration camps. Now, the camps were not very different from the Nazi camps, except that you know, the gas chambers were no, no, no extermination. But living under horrible conditions, and they came back with a very grim picture of what life was like in the camps. And you mean the same camp in Poland? Same camps, you know, maybe another detention camp, but the, the circumstances were not very different. But they were like not in detention, they were. Well, you know, they weren't extermination camps, no gas chambers, you know, no killing, no slave labor, but uh, the conditions were horrible. 
You should read the Harrison Commission, Truman's Commission. How do you call that, uh, Harrison? Harrison, H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N. I suppose it's obtainable. It's a pretty grim picture of life in the camps. Generally speaking, three months after victory appeared of day and even longer after the liberation of individual groups, many Jewish displaced persons and also possibly non-repatriable are living under guard behind barbed wire fences in camps of several descriptions built by the German slave laborers and Jews, including some of the most notorious of the concentration camps amidst crowded, frequently unsanitary and generally grim conditions in complete idleness with no opportunity except surreptitiously and unmanaged in spite of their many obvious difficulties to find clothing on one kind or another for their charges. Many of the Jewish displaced persons late in July had no clothing other than their concentration camp guard, a rather hideous strip pyjamas effect, while others, to the chagrin, were obliged to wear German SS uniform. It is questionable which clothing they hate the most. Actually, you know, this is pretty normal. I mean, treatment of Holocaust victims is grotesque uh, right now. But take France. Uh, the, the Roma, were you know, they were treated pretty much like the Jews. France is expelling them to miserable poverty. They're expelling basically Holocaust survivors and their descendants. And it's particularly dramatic in France because there's so much posturing there about Holocaust denial. I mean, you can't have a more extreme case of Holocaust denial than taking survivors and punishing them. And as far as I can see in France, there's almost no discussion of this. In fact, when the European Union protested, Sarkozy condemned them, you know, for their anti-French extremism and so on. I mean, you know, the cynicism about all of this is pretty remarkable. Um, can I come back to maybe more happy matters? <laughs> you pick at random in the world, it won't be very happy. <laughs> I know, but we're going to come back and go more inside your memories. Okay. I wanted to know if the, uh, the education you gave to your children was influenced by what you believe in language acquisition or what's going on with the brain. Well, I mean, the education at home, yes. So, you know, we read to the kids, encouraged the kids to read, and uh, encouraged them to follow their own interests. Um, the three kids were quite different. My son, from a very early age, uh, was mostly interested in science and mathematics. So, you know, by the time he was 10 years old, we were reading together popular books on relativity theory and things like that. But we just let the kids go where they wanted. They went and encouraged them. You know, they went in different directions. It was fine with us. You know, tried to just encourage them to do what they wanted. The school was convention. We wanted them to go to the public schools and work reasonably well when one child was not making out in public school we moved her to a Quaker school which was better. They essentially picked their own paths. As soon as they left home they went off to become political activists. Uh, one my older daughter uh, spent a couple of months at college, couldn't stand it, uh, went off and joined the United Farm Workers and ever since then has been very involved in political activity. My young, her younger sister uh, went to Nicaragua in the 1980s and stayed. And my son went off in a different direction. 
that my children grew up in an atmosphere of extreme political tension. I don't know how much they felt. For example, I was in and out of jail, and I was facing a long jail sentence, enough so that uh, my wife uh, went back to college after 17 years to try to get, to get a degree, an advanced degree, because we assumed she'd have to take care of the children, she'd need a job. And the kids kind of grew up in this atmosphere, but I don't think they felt any particular tension. My wife told me once that my uh, probably eight, 10-year-old daughter, I guess, uh, told her when she came home from school, and she asked what to do in such show and tell. She said, well, I described it. I told him how my father was in jail. What makes you happy? Happy. Children, grandchildren, friends, you know. I don't really think about it much. I don't spend much any time in self-indulgence, especially since my wife died. I do almost nothing. You know, don't go to the movies, don't go to the theater, don't eat out, do what I have to do. But, I mean, there are a lot of things that are very gratifying. So, for example, uh, especially seeing victims. Like, I just came back from Turkey, where I was, uh, I've been there several times. This is always issues related to the repression of the Kurds. Actually, I was there one. The first time I was there was to take part in a trial and be co-defendant. But uh, this time was for a conference on uh, repression and freedom of expression. You see people who are really uh, dedicated, courageous, struggling all the time, uh, standing up against repression. It's quite inspiring. A couple of months before that, I was in uh, southern Colombia. Uh, Colombia has the worst human rights record in the hemisphere, and of course the most U.S. military aid in the hemisphere, they correlate. And uh, at these places, I was visiting quite remote, endangered villages, and the people are just inspiring. Actually, very moving experience. Personally, I was there in part because they were dedicating a forest to the memory of my wife. And uh, it's the kind of compassion and uh, kindness that you just don't see in the world we live in. It was just kind of natural, no, no pretentiousness about ceremony. But, and you, you see things like that all over, all over the world here, too. Not much in the circles in which we live, you know, elite intellectual circles. But. Much more abstract even than in the case of the tree. There was a sudden explosion. The answers to like the phonetics, I don't care about them. My father worked on history of the Semitic language. During the early exposure with the child, One of your books from the 70s, you give this example of the sentence, the man who is tall is in the room, and how the child naturally can postulate the question. And I was wondering if you could explain just quickly, because I could do a very nice animation from that. Um, this is a simple question, and it's interesting that it never bothered anyone. It's a little bit like uh, for 2,000 years, 
scientists were satisfied with simple explanation for an obvious fact. If, if you take an apple and you detach it from a tree, it's going to go down. If you take steam, it's going to go up. Yeah. So 2,000 years, the answer was, well, they're going to their natural place. End of discussion. As soon as people started getting puzzled about that, like Galileo and Newton, then you have modern science. Uh, this is the same. Take the sentence that you gave me, the, uh, the man who is tall is happy or whatever it is. Uh, if you want to form a question from that, you take the word is and you put it in the front. So is the man who is tall happy? Right? That's the question. You don't take the first occurrence of is. You don't take the closest one to the front and say, is the man who tall is happy? And that's gibberish. Now how does it, why? I mean, why doesn't the child do the simple thing? Take the first occurrence of is and put it in the front. That's computationally, that's much easier than finding the main occurrence, which requires knowing the phrases and so on. But it's an inconceivable error. No child has ever made that error. And it's the same in all, you know, minor variations. The same principle holds in all languages. So why? Well, you know, there's some interesting explanations for why. But this is a good example of the brute force approach. In computational cognitive science, where they, as a matter of principle, want to believe that the mind is essentially empty. Then Noam took my pen and wrote the following sentence. Look, there are serious questions about it. Like, take the man who is tall is happy. This is a predicate. This is the subject, okay? And this is sort of the main element, you know, that's the main element of the whole sentence. And, you, and that's the one that structurally is closest to the middle, to the beginning. This one is re more remote from the beginning structurally because you have to work through this whole business, okay? So structurally speaking, this is the closest to the front. Uh -huh. Linearly, this is the closest to the front. Yeah. Now the question is, why do you use structural proximity and not linear proximity? And it's not just this case, it's every, every language, yeah. every construction. Is that the, the evidence of the student's grammar? Well, that's the data. And there is a principle. I mean, the principle is uh, keep to minimal structural distance. Okay, now where does that come from? This part is probably just a law of nature. Computation tries to do things in the simplest way. But the uh, structural distance part is a fact about language. I mean, you could have minimal computation if you did it this way. In that case, what we would say is the man who tall is happy. The child picks structural closeness because that's a property of language, probably genetically determined. Yeah, but that's, that's about all there is to it. The man who is tall is happy. Yes, the man who is tall is very happy. He's the man on his happy. He's the man who is on happy. He's the man who is on happy. He's the man who is on his happy. He's the man who is on happy. He's the man who is on his happy. Okay. Yes. We've been. Okay. I gotta rush him over. He's gonna okay. miss the thing. Good to see you again. Yeah. I'm glad you're doing well.
I'm gonna get you out of here. Your bag?